doesn't accept that definition or that difference, then it's a very easy thing to write. Did you have left on rebuttal? How much time was left on rebuttal? Good afternoon. Welcome to the Court of Appeals. Please be Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please When I read it, the court doesn't belong to the judges, it doesn't belong to the lawyers, it doesn't belong to the courthouse crowd. It belongs to the people of this state. Welcome to the second episode of Georgia Appellate Review. I'm Ryan Locke, and I'm here with David Clark, who was the director of the Georgia Public Defender Council's Appellate Division, has recently entered private practice. Uh, David, thank you so much for being here. No problem, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So, David, tell me how you got into uh, uh, handling appeals. Well, I've been practicing criminal defense since 1990, and I don't know what my first appeal was, but I've been doing appeals of my own cases since then. Uh, And as I grew into my role as criminal defense lawyer, I realized that My skill set was more along the lines of motion practice as a trial lawyer, which kind of naturally evolves into an appellate practice because you're you're utilizing the same legal research and writing skills, uh, but on a much more intense level. Uh, So I handled my own appeals and those of my firm. Clark and Town was a, a firm in Gwinnett County for over 20 years. And uh, I supervised the appellate practice of a couple of other lawyers in my office, uh, Winston Getz and Rick Reisick, who went on to become very good appellate lawyers in their own right. And we did a whole lot of cases. We had a large volume of cases in DUI and drug cases in criminal defense in Gwinnett County. So over the years, we uh, ended up doing appeals uh, for our own clients, and I ended up getting a good track record in search and seizure appeals, which became kind of my specialty, and then DUI, uh, which is always an active area for appellate practice as well. Do you think it's important to specialize in that way when you're handling appeals in terms of the the areas that you're working in? Um, it, it, it's kind of an inevitability. I mean, there's, there's your experience in various types of cases. And when you, when you handle a type of case, uh, if you care about it, you be, you have to become an expert in that area of the law. Uh, I ended up handling a lot of DUI and drug cases and, I cared about my clients and I cared about doing a good job and winning. So I became better at that than other things. Um, You know, I have colleagues who are terrific at uh, other areas of law, sex crimes, you know, BJ Bernstein and uh, Doug Peters and Scott Key and other people um, and other colleagues who are terrific with uh, trying drug cases like Bruce Harvey and some other folks. Uh, doing motions practice and appeals in drug cases uh, became my thing. And then uh, also DUI, which is somehow re- also related. There's a lot of motions practice in DUI, so there's a lot of appellate practice as well. Is it important to specialize? Um, it's inevitable. I don't know if it's important or it, it helps you. You just have to realize your strengths and weaknesses and be honest with yourself. And as you practice more, you get I think you're, you naturally gravitate towards some offenses and others, and then you end up getting more business in that area, which makes you uh, better just from practicing. Now, when, when you were doing the motions practice too, would you do that for other lawyers as well or, or just on your cases? 
Um, the DUI community was pretty close and we would help each other out with motions. I handled, I participated in, in an appeal with Billy Heelan on, um, uh, Phillips Brogdon and with, uh, Christine Kohler on, uh, oh God, what was that guy's name? It was a DUI drugs case. Uh, in, in certain communities, uh, of law, uh, the friends are closer and help each other out. I think criminal defense is one of them. The short answer is yes, we would get together on motions and help each other out ahead of time, sometimes in court. But a lot of times if there's a major appeal and we all knew it was real important, we'll kind of gang up on it, uh, either through GACTL or the Dodd uh, DUI defense group, or just uh, you would reach out to a friend who you know is really good because everybody wants to win these cases because it helps uh, criminal defense lawyers across the state. Now, is it easier or harder working on an appeal with multiple people, like other lawyers in the mix? Um, it's easier. Uh, you have to have, you have to put your ego aside. Uh, when I started working with the public defender office in Atlanta, uh, it was humbling because there's so many good people there, and it, it made it easier when we collaborated on areas of the law where I wasn't as strong. Uh, ineffective assistance of counsel is one of them, for example, because. In private practice, I rarely handled those issues because I handle my own appeals and you can't raise your own ineffectiveness. So you just have to understand your strengths and weaknesses and, and own the fact that you're good at some things and not at others. And when you can collaborate on the stuff you're not as handy with, uh, it's much easier and you're, you're, you're doing your client a service and yourself uh, to humble up and go ahead and work with somebody else who's done this before. It, it, when I was at the, the Fulton Public Defender's office, I often felt like I am the worst attorney standing here <laughs> because there's so much, there's such a depth of talent yeah, across the being board. old and feeling that way. I mean, I went in there, <laughs> these guys at the uh, appellate division are terrific. They're sitting there doing appeals, Andrew and others, uh, Margaret Heinen, everybody there was uh, really, really bright. And they brought different things to the table in years of, uh, handling uh, major felonies or appeals of murder cases and things that you don't do a lot in private practice. Um, but, you know, I'm a quick study. So I, I won three murder cases in the past year and a half and uh, often with the help of, of people at the office. What do you think is the, is the hardest skill to develop as an appellate lawyer? Well, I think it's, uh, well, issue spotting is the main skill. Uh, we all like to emphasize writing and trying to get better at writing and researching, but issue spotting is everything. It's one thing to spot the rulings that happened and the things that happened, but the hard part is finding the omissions, things that the judge didn't do, things that the lawyers didn't do that they're supposed to do. Um, and the more trial experience you have, probably the better you are at that. But there are things like jury instructions, like uh, accomplice corroboration. If the judge gives single witness, uh, they have to give accomplice corroboration, whether the lawyer asks for it or not. Think details like that, that you either know it or you don't. And the omissions that the people at trial left out, that's the hard part to, to know and to spot. It's easy to just list all the rulings and look up to see if the judge made the right decision. You have to do that, obviously. I think it's harder to spot the omissions. And and aside from experience, do you have any good strategies on how to deal with that? I mean, I know you know that 
there are checklists floating around of of kind of you know these are the the three hundred issues that you may see yeah. in an appeal yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, what else do you use to 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 kind of you know make sure that you're not missing the stuff that you don't even know is missing? Well, the only way I know to do it is what I teach, uh, which is to go through the transcript and keep a running list of issues that you recognize. When you see a ruling that you think is wrong, make a note of it, put a star next to it, and put on a piece of paper what you think was wrong. Uh, you kind of get a, you know, the first thing I do, backing up the entire way, my whole process is to uh, first look at the indictment and the sentence and see what the guy was convicted of because we don't care of, about the things that he was not convicted of. Uh, and the, go and look at the statutes. I don't care how many times you've looked at the statute. Write out the statute by hand. Uh, I'm sitting here in front of me with three different legal pads with the statutes written out by hand for each case. Just to remind yourself what the elements of the crimes are and what the common defenses are uh, and what the indictment says about these particular offenses so you know what you're looking for. And don't overlook any possible sufficiency arguments or... Uh, you have to know what's relevant in the case when you're reading the transcript. So that's the first thing I do. And then keep this running list as you read the transcript and the evidence. And make a note as to issues that you recognize. And make a note as to things that make you go, huh, things that like bother you, but you don't know why. And mm -hmm. those are the things you have to research. And omissions would be included in that list. Why wasn't there a motion for mistrial here? Why wasn't there... Uh, why wasn't there a pretrial motion on this issue? Why, uh, why did the judge send the jury out for that? Why wasn't this taken down? Things that just kind of bother you. And probably nine out of 10 of them are going to end up being nothing, but you have to do the research. Uh, and that's, that's again, the, the idea of being humble enough to know uh, that you don't know the whole law and that you're going to have to look some things up uh, and just those things that make you wonder, go ahead and look them up and you're going to rule them out probably. But after you find out, you, you might, you're going to find out either that it's nothing or that there's a, a rule in place that you disagree with. And one of the other things that's important is to remember to keep an idea of what the law should be. Even if, you know, this is a 404B argument, for example, and we all know that the judge always grants these and the DA always gets what they want. Don't always, don't forget that it, it might be the way things are, but that might be wrong. It might be something you want to try to change. So, you, you know, when I first went out, I read a space from David Wolf, and I think he is, you know, maybe the best lawyer I've ever met at, at being able to see what the law should be and then create an argument for that. And, and then you listen to it and you say, that makes perfect sense. It's incredible. Yeah, I learn a lot every time I hear David speak. I think it was a year ago, or he spoke to the Public Defender Convention either last year or the year before. And one of the things he said was about scientific evidence and experts that, you know, he says, this is not, there's no such thing as a reasonable degree of scientific certainty. First of all, that flies in the face of the definition of science. And that blew my mind because it's true. And the other thing was that a lot of these things they pawn off as science in forensics is nothing more than comparing things, which any juror can really do. And the, the, some of these experts the state puts up are really overblown people that are looking at two things and saying one of these things is not like the other. And 
they, they're given so much scientific weight and they shouldn't be. And you can cross-examine the crap out of them. He was, he's very inspirational. I agree. He's, he's a good lawyer. Now, when, when you review the transcript, do you review it digitally or do you have the <clears throat> transcript in front of you? Always digitally. And I try to eliminate paper at every turn. So I, I use bookmarks um, on one side for significant for every exhibit, every witness, every stage of the trial and every issue that I find I bookmark. And I also highlight and use the comments as I go along so that every comment, the text of every comment is saved on the right hand side so that I can cut and paste into my brief later on with a page reference. Uh, so I, I don't use paper transcript and stickies. Do you, do you do a separate digest or anything? I mean, it sounds like you leave everything in the, in the transcript PDF. I don't digest, and that's, that's weird. I get a lot of flack for that. But I consider that marked-up transcript as good as a digest and better because I can word search. Uh, if you do the OCM and you make your uh, PDF document searchable, I find it very valuable that I can search for the county to check venue, for example, and also certain words that I'm looking for. You know, let's say if it's a, you know, uh, a dog sniff case or something, I'm looking for the word canine or dog or something, and it saves me a lot of time. And um, and again, my running list keeps keeps track of everything important. That I do on paper. The only thing I do on paper is this handwritten list of the statutes and then my handwritten list of issues and things that made me wonder. Now, when it when it comes time to research, I I mean, I'm guessing you don't print out the cases and write on them. Do, do you download them? Do you just pull out quotes from them? How do you kind of organize your research as you're moving along? I save the cases to a folder in Westlaw. Uh, we used to use Lexis. They have the same thing. I have a folder for every client and every case or statute, all the statutes for the crimes and for evidentiary issues I save to the folder, all the cases that I mark up the cases with highlighting so I know which parts are valuable. And then I save them to the folder with notes. So later when I'm writing the brief, I know which cases are uh, pertinent to which issues and I could skip right to the highlighted portion and I know the good parts. Sometimes as I, as I research, I'll cut and paste quotes of the um, good cases and stick it right into my brief uh, just uh, so to remind me that this case was good for me. And then I'll go back and, and uh, tidy it up later. Do you outline before you draft your brief or do you just go right in? Um, here's what I do um, is after I finish reading the transcript and I have that list that I was telling you about of issues, I come up with the enumeration of errors first. Uh, after I've done my research, I figure out what issues I have and which ones are the strongest. And then I come up with the enumeration of errors, and it's a succinct description, a short error for each uh, issue, and that becomes the headings of my argument section. So I'll do the enumeration of errors uh, and try to make it as pithy and uh, to the point as possible, and then I'll do standards of review for each of those errors so that I'm clear on the standard of review, uh, which is really the object of the game. You can't miss that. And I'll put it in the brief at the trial court level. I always do a brief at the trial court level at motion for new trial uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, to organize my own thoughts for the hearing. Second of all, to try to um, get the DA to give me a deal if possible, which has happened a, a lot for me. Uh, and third of all, it's there's no timeline. There's no time deadline for the motion for new trial brief. So I can take my time and write a good brief. And then when I get that docketing notice from the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court, 
uh, I'm not in a rush because I've already got the brief in the can. I just have to tweak it. And in fact, I'll do the, the brief at the trial court level in the same format as the court it's likely going to so that it's already formatted. And um, I do my brief in the same kind of order that my appellate briefs go. So enumeration of errors first. Uh, and I try to I try not to shotgun. But if I'm going to shotgun, if I'm going to include issues just for my client's benefit, I'll do it at the motion for new trial level. Um, but I try to keep it to three to five issues that are really good, if possible. And then those are the headings from my argument section. Then I go ahead and structure the argument section. By uh, Usually I'll list good cases, good statutes, good facts, and kind of try, try to put them in a good order. And then I'll keep revising it until it reads well. Uh, and then go on to the next section and do the same and then revise the brief more later on. And then after all that's done, write the statement of facts, because I think it's real important to only include the facts that you need to win your case. Um, that that can mean not that many facts. If all you have is a sentencing issue uh, that, you know, there's something wrong with the sentence, then all you have to put in the statement of facts is, uh, your guy was convicted on such and such a date. He was sentenced to such and such, uh, and he was given this sentence or whatever. Like It's a recidivism problem, for example. You don't need to talk about the trial at all. All you have to do is talk about the sentencing because that's your only issue. Uh, I've heard appellate judges come in and talk about that a lot, and you can always count on the DA to file a brief full of facts, too many facts. Uh, so they're going to be before the court anyway. Uh, it helps with your conciseness and your forcefulness in writing if you have a short statement of facts that only includes the facts you need to win. And it's the respondent's job to add any facts that they think you left out. So let them do it. And they're going to do it anyway. So that's kind of my process. And then after all that is done, write the conclusion and then the opening blurb, which I think is real important to uh, attention grabber at the very top of the brief. Do you do you moot before oral arguments? I believe in it, and I do it whenever possible. Um, right. <laughs> oral <laughs> right. arguments. Um, I look. I'm looking forward to doing more and more oral arguments in the future. I've heard three or four appellate uh, court of appeals judges say they want to do more oral arguments. Um, you know, lately it's been the case where you can have oral argument in the Supreme Court just for asking. And usually you want to do that unless it's a silly issue or you have no chance of winning or it's just something that doesn't need oral argument. But the Court of Appeals, a couple of those judges, they're, they're wanting to do more of them. And uh, Justice Rickman, or Judge Rickman said that he thinks you should do it in every case just to get your issue in front of eyeballs uh, to, as they review your request for oral argument. Uh, because there's, you know, they keep saying how busy they are and, how, you know, the more you're paperwork gets in front of eyeballs of judges and clerks, the better chance you have of winning. But I, I do think it, it depends on the case. I, don't, I think your credibility is injured if you ask for oral argument or get it in a case where it's really not warranted. Uh, it needs to be a case that's worth discussing with, with peers and it's worth, uh, you know, it's got some, some interesting features to it. Uh, I have one right now that, gets into uh, Ferretta, the right of self-representation, where this fella, the client, uh, 
really didn't want to represent himself, but he was unhappy with his lawyer. And Ryan, as you know, that's two different things. You know, your client's upset with you. Well, that's fine. He's allowed to be upset with you. It doesn't necessarily mean he wants to represent himself. He may want to fire you. And you know, some judges, every judge has a different take on that. This is a Gwinnett County judge, so he does reassign cases once. So he allowed the first lawyer to withdraw and appointed the second lawyer. And then he turned around and said, um, well, no, I'm just going to appoint him standby and let you represent yourself. Well, the client didn't really ask for that. Um, and then later on, of course, the judge decided that the client had changed his mind and he let the standby lawyer try the case. Well, in that whole interim period, what was the attorney-client relationship? What does standby mean? The, the judge didn't give any uh, parameters or uh, guidelines to what the standby lawyer should and shouldn't do. Is there an attorney-client relationship? Is there confidentiality? Is that lawyer zealously representing his client or just kind of doing what the trial judge says? It's a real weird area. And when that person gives up his right to represent himself, does that require another hearing? What they call reverse Ferretta. And in other states, they're doing that. So this is a court of appeals case because it's not a murder. It's a, a statutory rape. So it's going to the court of appeals, but I'm certainly going to ask for an oral argument because it's interesting and it's kind of first impression. And it's something that you could debate for days, and the facts are real screwy in this case. Uh, and this poor lawyer was jerked around by the court, and he wanted to do a good job, uh, but he was only standby counsel. So what does that mean? Nobody, nobody knew what it meant. And in the meantime, this client has the right to represent himself, and that's considered a, you know, a serious constitutional right that you can't interfere with. There's this McCaskill case with the U.S. Supreme Court that says if you interfere with the client's right to represent himself, it's reversible error. So that kind of issue, I think, warrants oral argument for sure, and I'm going to ask for it. Um, I don't know if I'll get it or not. I think it depends on the panel and their attitudes. But it seems like more and more of those judges are actually wanting to do uh, oral argument in criminal cases. You know, one of the hardest things that that I have is when – when it's a, a pretty straightforward case in a pretty well settled area of law, and you're arguing, okay, well, you know, th the facts either, uh, you know, implicate this law or not, and and trying to find a, a good hook to to get oral argument in the court of appeals, um, try you know, hooking it to to some larger dispute in the law or something like that. I mean, what advice do you have for that? Well. It's hard to read their minds, but I think there has to be something sexy either in the facts or the law. Um, we had a, a good one that I probably should have asked for oral argument on. It was actually a discretionary appeal I was helping a lady with who was a public defender in North Georgia. The issue was uh, the guy was on the sex offender registry and he was required as a condition of probation to submit to polygraph examinations. So he submitted, but then he took the fifth during the polygraphed examination. Now, everybody has the right to take the fifth. So the issue was, did they revoke him for taking the fifth or did they revoke him for some other reason? Um, and, you know, that that's a sexy issue because you're invoking a constitutional right and you're being revoked, your probation is being revoked for it. So you're being punished for taking the fifth. And... That's the kind of thing I think they, they probably, had I asked, they probably would have granted oral argument on that, but I didn't ask and I regret it. 
Uh, they ended up finding that, of course, uh, he was revoked for a different reason. But they did say in dicta that it's wrong to revoke someone for exercising their Fifth Amendment rights during a polygraph examination. So we did establish that law. But it would have been fun to argue that with the DA because I don't think you – know, Ryan, you've read these transcripts. You've been to court on probation revocation. The judge wants to avoid an issue. They just – all they have to say is – I'm basing this on something else. You know, you, you didn't cooperate with your treatment. That's why I'm revoking you. So there's a lot of weasel words that get used in there. But in truth, the reason they actually revoked this guy was for taking the fifth and asserting his rights, which is fundamentally wrong. And it would have been fun to zealously advocate that in front of some judges. And it might have made a difference, actually. What, what advice do you have for, for managing other appellate lawyers? Well, very few people have to do it. Uh, my, office, my office back in, in Atlanta was one of the few. It was the only firm of its kind. I had 15 lawyers in-house handling criminal appeals. There's no other firm in Georgia that does that and has that many people. And then I had to contract with folks like you um, and wrangle a, a list of 75 independent contractors who were handling appeals on their own. Um the best advice is don't go there unless you've been there, kind of. I mean, I can talk to you or any trial lawyer about criminal defense and trying cases because I've been doing it for a long time. So I could sympathize with everybody's workloads and how they managed doing an appeal on top of all of that. And I knew what that life was like. So I was able to empathize with the people that I contracted with. Uh, it took me a while to get used to the full-time lawyers. Um basically just stay out of their way and support them and, and uh, nurture them because uh, they were all brilliant. They were all very dedicated. Um, I didn't have to do a lot of managing. I mean, my big advice would be to hire well. Mm -hmm. uh, and if there's one thing I'm proud of, it's the people I hired there uh, were all terrific. Um, but appellate law, if you're able to do it and, and you, you know, you know, basically what's required and you're smart enough it's a lot of fun. So the people that work there enjoyed their work, which made it pretty easy to manage them. I wish I could have gotten them all paid more. Um, but, you know, the, these were terrific people that knew what they were doing. So there wasn't a whole lot of managing to do. Stay out of the way. Try to make the workplace uh, bearable and, um, uh, you know, solve the little crises and everything like that. But the short answer is... Um, uh, praise people all the time. That's a basic management technique is make people feel good about the work they're doing. Listen to them. Um, follow up on things that they talk to you about. Show them that you that you care about what they think and then they'll trust you. And then you can ask things of them that are, you know, that you need as a manager and keep the relationship professional. Uh, treat people like adults and like professionals and, uh, I, I didn't have any problem with the people that I supervised uh, and we all got along well and, and uh, helped, helped each other uh, win cases. I think, I think it's so valuable to hear that, you know, you, legal man, like managing a legal team is the same as managing any other team, which is to be a good manager. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it kind of depends on the people, too. If you look at sports teams, I mean, Bobby Cox was considered a player's manager because basically he stayed out of the way and the Braves kind of decided on their own to become champions. Um, I don't think you can be that passive, but some groups require a, a stronger 
leader, and it, it, I think it's situational. Um, but uh, there, yeah, there's only a couple of offices in the state that have multiple appellate attorneys in the same place. Fulton County is one of them. Um, Savannah is kind of the other. They have, you know, Bob Purse has uh, Amy Erig, and you know, it, it's it's kind of like uh, managing trial lawyers as well. Uh, it's it's you know the big difference is that appeals take longer. Uh, I've managed an office full of trial lawyers, and the turnover is quicker because your case is going to come up and get resolved fairly quickly. You know, a guy might sit in jail for a year. Uh, in Gwinnett, that didn't happen that much, but across the state, it certainly does. And you've got to manage the trials um, and stay on top of it, and please. And, and trial weeks are hectic and crazy, and you got to get used to that. Um, appellate brief, while appellate work is basically an individual pursuit. Uh, we don't really, we didn't like team up on appeals a lot. Um, we had our Monday meetings where we would, uh, discuss issues, very valuable meetings, but afterwards the lawyer went back and took what they learned and continued work on their lonesome. Um, and that's kind of the nature of the beast. You know, everybody wrote their own briefs and nobody, you know, we, we proofed each other's briefs occasionally. And I looked at them once in a while, uh, and we monitored the quality, but basically you're on your own. So you need people that are uh, capable of individual study and individual work and managing their time individually. Um, but you have to stay on top of it to some degree, make sure people are doing the work. But, um, you know, watch their egos. Every You have to have an ego to do this work. Um, and just, you know, usually be complimentary, listen, gain people's trust. And, uh, uh, you know, it, I thought it helped that I jumped right in and took on a caseload as well, just to show that I was willing to do the work, the same work that they did so that it showed that um, I was willing to get in the trenches and do the work and and kind of comprehend uh, what their issues were in terms of productivity and problems getting transcripts and, and the, the unique problems we had as an office. I was familiar with them because I did the work, at least for the first year I was there. Well, David, you know what time it is. It's lightning time. <laughs> it's time for the game show portion. Uh, the lightning round, where I ask you your opinions on certain appellate topics and then tell you if you're right or wrong. Uh, so your opinions right or wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I bet you Andrew's going to kick my ass at this. All right. Well, I'm I'm interested to see. <laughs> the all right. So your first issue is the parenthetical cleaned up. Ah. Are you on board or not? I don't think it will go over in Georgia. I think that uh, Justice Melton came and spoke to us and said he is very suspicious of people that use ellipses and brackets, and I I wouldn't go there. I I, I understand how some judges think it makes it easier to read the brief, but uh, personally, I think your credibility would suffer if you told the judges to just trust. Trust me, I cleaned it up. Um, if you're Brian Steele, maybe if you if you're if you're Scott Key, maybe if they know you and they trust you already, but average run of the mill lawyer, I say no, don't don't use it. All right, your next issue. Hopefully, this one's easy. Oxford comma, do you use it? Oh, every goddamn time. Do not go there. Do not not use the Oxford comma. I mean, it's I essential. think it's, it's it's almost a professional responsibility to use the Oxford comma. Yeah, because you're just you're messing not my friend. Around. Yeah, if you're not my friend, if you don't use the Oxford comma. All right, your next issue, the font. Do you use a, a special font? 
Times New Roman. Yep. Here, well, here's what I do. Uh, and this is like Margaret Heinen totally turned my head around on this. If it's going to be on a printed page, for example, a trial court brief, my motion in support of amended motion, motion for new trial brief, Times New Roman, because it's going to be on paper. And she says those serifs on the font make it more readable on paper. On a screen, however, all my appellate briefs are in Calibri because it's a sans serif font. And Margaret told me that's easier to read. Then I found out Microsoft spent millions of dollars to make Calibri very easy to read on an LCD screen because of the way the pixels line up. So anything that's easier to read, you know, we're throwing this up in front of 70-year-old judges. I'm going to use uh, Calibri uh, for now until somebody talks me out of it. Four, 14 point. Your your next issue, do you put hyperlinks to cases in your brief or not? I don't, but I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, there's no rule on it as far as I know with the appellate courts, but I think it's a great idea. My uh, partner, Jessica, and I were just talking about that. Uh, I think it's definitely coming, especially hyperlinks to the record, which is what I think they really want to do, um, which I think is a terrific idea. Uh, and it may help us do away with the uh, debate on footnoting uh, citations. Uh, and I, I think it's a good idea. Right now, I don't do it. Uh, I may I may change my mind uh, very soon because I think it's a great idea. I'm the same where I don't do it now. And I'd never really thought about hyperlinking to the record. Um, Andrew mentioned it. And that's what I think they're going to do. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, to me, it just makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually need to figure out how to do it. Always yeah, oral argument? Do you always ask for oral argument or not? No. Uh, if I have a case that's that's not a winner, that hasn't really got any good issues, I'm not going to waste the court's time by showing up and running my mouth about nothing. Uh, now, you know, uh, the, the situation, that, that, that comes up more when you're a public defender or you're handling appointed work. Uh, more than if you're picking your own appeals. If you're picking your own appeals and you tried the case and, and you know it's a good issue, I would probably ask for an argument if I like the issue that much. Uh, but we have some cases where you, know, you don't have a whole lot to go on, and I'm not going to waste the court's time with a request and a case that's a sufficiency-only brief or, or something I don't really think is a winning issue because uh, credibility with the courts is so important, and I don't think you do anything to help your credibility if you show up on a case that has no business being orally argued tables of contents tables of authorities stuff like that do you put nope. those in or not nope 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 um in the supreme court they kind of allow for it if i had a 50 page brief i would probably put a table of contents in there but um the short answer is no i i, I don't think they're that necessary in this day and age of uh uh, word searching and uh, PDFs and computers. I think back in the days when you had, you know, if it was a death penalty brief, and it was three hundred pages long. Yes, but I don't, I don't do those. So no, short answer, no. All right, every issue or only winning issues? Oh wow. Um, um, short answer is only winning issues, but. The uh, one case where we got a DUI statute declared unconstitutional, it was my third issue. It wasn't my first. And I've had other cases where the winning issue was way down the list, and I almost didn't include it because I didn't think it was that much of a winner. 
So only winning issues, but my definition of winning issues is pretty broad. Um, it has to be really a, a loser for me to leave it off um, at the appellate level. But short answer is only winning issues. Again, credibility. I don't want to put some... I just had Judge McFadden tell me last week, you really shouldn't uh, raise eight issues just because you can. And then when you see someone arguing in the eighth issue that it's not a great issue and they're, and they're arguing it like it is a great issue, he starts disrespecting that lawyer. And I kind of agree. You know, if you've got eight real good issues, yeah, list them. But don't act like your eighth issue, which really sucks, is such a great issue because the judges know better. Do you use – do you put an introduction somewhere? Absolutely, right away. Uh, this is something I picked up from Brian Garner and uh, Brandon Bullard, who I used to work with. Um, Brian Garner is very big on advocate for your client as soon as possible in the brief, as forcefully as possible. So I do a cover sheet and then no styling on the second page. I start immediately with a, a catchy blurb that is designed to grab the reader's attention and make my case in as few words as possible. Andrew says 75 words. I say, if you can do it in 20 words, so much the better. My shortest one uh, was show me the money. This was a murder for hire case where my issue was that the evidence was insufficient for murder for hire because the person who was hiring the hitman never paid him. So the shortest way to say that was show me the money. So four words was my introduction in that case. So your, your introduction was just introduction, show me the money, and then enumeration of errors. Well, statement of facts. Cause right. It well, was, statement, it yeah. Was, yeah. Yes, it was. And I think, I, uh, I think it grabs the reader's attention. And I don't like in that opening blurb, I don't like going over every issue. That's not important. What's important is grabbing the reader's attention and orienting them toward your argument immediately. It's usually much longer than four words, but the point being, you want to show the judge the sexy part of your argument that says you win. So they're thinking about that as they read whatever they're going to read next. And it shouldn't it shouldn't be complete. It should leave them saying, what? What's going on here? Make them curious, just like a good book starts with a bang. Do you, do you what do you use to draft? I assume Microsoft Word. Um, right now I'm using pages because I have an Apple computer at home. Uh, but I prefer Microsoft Word. Honestly, I'm thinking of starting to use it instead because Pages is getting on my nerves. The the uh, this next lightning round issue. Do you use styles in Word? Styles in Word. You mean like the paragraph style writing right. style, like setting having like a different style for like block quote and you know oh. body and well, whatever. I I use styles for block quotes and different sections of the brief, but I don't use that feature of Word, no. Sure. sure. All right, Brandon, the, yeah, Brandon gave me some ideas on formatting that I think are terrific that I never used before, and my briefs look pretty cool now because of my friend Brandon and Margaret. I think my, my big breakthrough in formatting stuff was using tables. And Yeah. That's, I, I'm in favor of that. Whatever makes it clear. Clarity is the most important thing in your writing and your briefs and your oral argument. Anything that makes it clearer what you're saying uh, is good. That's what you want is, is clarity. Uh, clarity, credibility, consistency. Those, that's what I teach. 
Um, and I think most judges, and you read about the surveys uh, of judges, what they hate, what they don't like, what they like, they all hate the, you know, this run-on sentences, verbose lawyers. They love conciseness. And it's always been, in my opinion, that people who know what they're talking about use short sentences. Do you Are you a fan of putting screenshots, photos, whatever, in the body of the brief? I've never done it, but I think it's a cool idea. The, I mean, now, not, your, your final question is, <laughs> party names in brief or appellant, appellee, all that nonsense? Oh, man. I use appellant, and I'm, I'm willing to change my mind in the future. Initially, I was like, oh, you should use the guy's name to humanize him. But then some of the clients I have are just psychopathic assholes. So you don't always <laughs> right. want to humanize your client because they're terrible. So if you have like an abstract, and I usually, usually what I'm arguing is an abstract legal concept. So appellant is more apt because you're distracting the judge from this actual person that you're representing because they're terrible and they've right. done terrible things. You're like, I don't want you to focus on the appellant. facts. I just want exactly. you to focus on. Exactly. Exactly. So that's where I'm at right now, but I just read something on appellate Twitter that says use appellant for the procedural part of the brief and then names for the uh, fact portion. I think the best rule is with your statement of facts, you might have three guys named Johnson. You might have brothers. I had brothers at one point with the same last name and similar first names. Using appellant there makes it clearer who you're talking about. So whatever makes your writing clearer, do that. Uh, if it's, you know, if it's two people involved in the whole story, I had two people doing meth in a trailer in one case. Yeah, you can use their first names or their last names or whatever, or Ms. whatever, Mr. whatever. Um, but if it's, you know, eight guys in a gang drug, drug deal gone bad shooting, okay, corral, and there's lots of characters, I think it helps that one of them's name is appellant so the judge can figure out who the guy is that we're talking about in this appeal. What do you think is, is the most important section of the brief? Um, hmm. Well, I'm going to say the enumeration of errors because issue spotting is everything. Frankly, I read a lot of briefs over the past two years and some of them were God awful briefs, but the lawyer spotted the right issue and won the case. You hate to see that because, you know, you always want to try to write your best. And I believe in caring about your writing. But the fact is, if you find the issue, uh, the poor clerks at the Court of Appeals and Supreme Court are going to read through all the crap that you're putting in there and all this terrible looking prose. But they're going to recognize that you found the issue and you're going to win. So spotting the issues and enumerating those errors is really the heart and soul of a criminal uh, appeal brief because if you don't do that, I mean, you know, you, that you you waive the issue if you don't raise it. And you you raise the right issues, you're really halfway home. Now, in a close case, your writing is going to make a difference, and you should have the self respect to write well. But honest to God, you know, spotting the issues is really the the ball game. Well, David, uh, thank you so much for being on. I think you did well in the lightning round. Um, yeah, because I thought you were going to ask me about specific cases, and I'm like, man, 
that's going to be hard. <laughs> that's, oh, yes. That would be the, the terrible lightning round that no one wants to listen to. And well, also Andrew, no one gets right. <laughs> Andrew would kick my ass in that, but I, I'm sure <laughs> hopefully my opinions are useful to somebody out there in, in podcast land. Well, David, how, um, how can we find you if we want to talk to you more about this? Um, email me at uh, dclark, D-C-L-A-R-K, at lawtown.com, L-A-W-T-O-W-N-E.com. Um, and that's about it. Right now I'm uh, building up my private practice, and I'm also helping win cases with uh, Jessica Town, which is a privilege. I'm um, getting back into the Gwinnett legal community, um, headquartered in Gwinnett. Um, but yeah, find me and uh, anything I can do to help any uh, lawyer out there. I'm, that's that's why I did what I did with the public defender system. And I'm always happy to, to mentor at my age. It's an obligation. So hit me up. All right. Great. Thanks so much, Dave. Take care, Ryan.